I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. It's actually in our Pew Bible, page 1172. 1172. I encourage you to, if you don't have a Bible, to use that Bible in front of you and join us together as we look at and read a very significant passage of Scripture this morning. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do pray that you would help us to understand the issues that are dealt with in this text, issues that are of apply to our hearts, involving our souls, involving our minds, issues that are tremendously important. I pray that you would help all of us, Lord, not to be distracted. Help those of us, Lord, today who are weary, help them, Lord, to be able to think through and follow what we're saying this morning. Father, I pray that this passage of your word would pierce all of our hearts and minds and that we would, Lord, sense anew and afresh what the intent of this teaching of Jesus is, and it would radically change our lives. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Every verse of Scripture is inspired by God. And every verse of Scripture has God as its author. But there are differences that exist between various verses of Scripture some biblical texts are more difficult to understand than others. Second Peter chapter 3 alludes to that. And some texts of Scripture are so comprehensive that they act and serve as summarizing sentences, that is, with many, many, many different portions of Scripture jam-packed together and making them into a comprehensive statement that has much weight and much significance. And Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, is one such verse. I like to look at these verses here in Matthew 22 and compare them to the Himalayan mountains. The Himalayan mountains are a mountain range of which, or in which, the tallest mountain exists in that group, Mount Everest. And so here we come to some heavy-duty, very massive mountains of biblical truth this morning. And the vast height and the expanse of these verses cannot fully be unpacked by anybody in one sermon or in ten sermons, I would suggest to you. I easily could have taken a whole year and probably unpacked all that's contained within these verses. Now, just to assure you, I've tried to condense that down to six points. Now, that's tough for me. I'm usually like three points if I can, but it was six this week. So I'm going to move quickly through them all, but hopefully in such a way that you can follow what I'm trying to say 
as we think this through. Let me remind you again the text, the, the context of Jesus' statement here is that he's speaking words in response to a question. It's not the first question. There have been numerous questions that have been posed to him in Matthew chapter 22. The question is, is posed by an expert in the Mosaic Law, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so Jesus has just finished silencing his previous critics who had asked him a question, the Sadducees, a theological question about the resurrection. But Jesus has silenced them because of his supreme uh, genius and his unmatched wisdom. And now, as the greatest prophet, he now is going to give the greatest answer to one of the greatest questions that's ever been asked about, one of the, about the greatest commandments you can find in Scripture. I don't want to sound like I'm magnifying and making this text bigger than it is. It is a massive, important question here facing us, and the answer that Jesus gives is so incredible, I call it the Mount Everest of biblical texts. So follow along now as we look at several different comments I want to make about as we consider this. I've got six of them, six observations I'd like us to consider regarding what it means to have the duty of loving God. First of all, loving God is not unclear. It's not something that is vague and sort of mysterious, if you will. Jesus recited in his answer the Shema, which is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 and following. And the Shema is the Hebrew word, which means hear. And that's the beginning of the phrase, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. So he quotes the Shema in answer to the question, what is the great commandment in the law? And virtually every Jew of the first century recited the Shema twice a day. So they're talking about something that they're very familiar with. One commentator made the point that this passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 and following that Jesus quoted was the most widely quoted, the most frequently copied, and the most familiar portion of the Hebrew Scriptures. Every earnest Jew would have understood the supreme importance of loving God. And that is clearly laid out for us. If you were to take time, as a Jew would have certainly been familiar with, the book of Deuteronomy, which is a series of three sermons that Moses preached right before he went into the promised land uh, to the generation that was now getting ready to enter the promised land, having seen 40 years of wandering the wilderness. He gives a number of sermons. And in chapter 6, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 19, chapter 30, and also even a verse in Joshua 22 Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God. It is repeated again and again and again. The only issue that was debatable in the minds of the Pharisees in the first century was which of the laws that were in the Pentateuch were on this list that they had developed on there are those that are the heavy laws, the laws which they would understand as being absolutely binding, and then they had a bunch of laws that they had invented and various uh, principles that they had sort of brought up and different texts of Scripture which they thought were less, less binding. These were the lighter laws. And so they would debate this back and forth. Oh, no, that's one of the heavy ones. That's the lighter one. Because why? Because they were all about trying to keep all of them. It was impossible to keep all of them. And so they tried to come up with a system, well, if I keep the heavy ones, then I'll be better off than if I just ignore the lighter ones. And so legalists always like to come up with some sort of schemes to avoid the fact that there's a tremendous sense of responsibility 
that are given to us and are spelling out the duties given to the people of God. But Jesus definitively clarifies that this particular passage of Scripture, the Shema, loving the Lord your God, is the one that has the weight and supreme importance and summarizes so much of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And so there's no greater duty, we could say, there's no greater response a person is to make in relationship to God than loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, I'm only going to cover that today, my friend. I'm not covering loving your neighbors yourself. That's next week. I'm just going to cover this morning the issues of loving God. You see, you think about it. The one true God who has existed forever in eternity in a condition of or a situation of love and unity among the members and the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived in community and in a love relationship from eternity past, that God created human race with the capacity to love and to enjoy Him. We, it's very important to understand that the God that Moses was declaring and the God that we are speaking of today and that Jesus was referring to in Jesus as God that God is relational in His essence. That God has made all of us as His image bearers to relate to Him with a wholehearted love and devotion. God's nature exhibits love as His chief characteristic. 1 John 4, God is love. The tragic irony of this text, as you read through the text and think through what's happening at the moment He said it, and then Fast forward two more days after Jesus said this incredible answer to the greatest question you could ask about which commandment was the greatest. Here is Jesus presenting himself as God, and he was, God and human, in human flesh. And he's saying that God is to be loved in a wholehearted fashion by everyone, implying what? Everyone should have loved him. Everyone should have loved him. And most, if not all, the people who were asking those questions of him on this Wednesday prior to the Friday when they put him to death is that they asked the questions out of a hatred for him because their desire was to destroy him. The irony of this whole exchange is incredible once you think about that and look at the bigger picture of what's going on there. Well, I just want to make the first point was it's not mysterious that they were to love God. It's not something that was unclear. It was very clear, and every Jew knew it. Second point, loving God is not optional. No one is exempt from this duty toward God. No one is excused from this responsibility, or if you will, this privilege. If you read Romans 13.10, a significant New Testament verse speaking about the issue of love and how it relates to the law, we know that love is the fulfillment of the law. And so loving God is in keeping with God's revealed will for His creatures. Wholeheartedly loving a creature, that is, devoting your entire heart and your soul and your mind to a created thing or created person as a higher priority or higher devotion is the essence of idolatry. Our hearts were made to love God. And our souls were designed to love God. 
Our, our minds were designed to love God. Now, I don't know how to illustrate that in a significant way, but what came to my mind earlier this week is, and I hate to allude to a television show, but I'm going to do that. There's a television show called Buried Alive on TLC. And it features the true life stories about people who are hoarders. People who place such value on things and various objects in their lives that they continue to acquire these items in such quantity and have such a difficult time dispensing with any of those items that it literally begins to fill up their houses to the point where they can no longer hardly walk to their house and the people in their lives find it difficult to remain in relationship with these people because of all their hoarded stuff. I don't watch the show very often. I watched it maybe once, couldn't take any more of that, and said, I've got enough clutter in my life. I don't need to see somebody else with a bunch of clutter that they can't get rid of. But here's the point. The point I walked away having watched just that brief time was this. These people were designed for relationship. God designed us with an imprint on our hearts that says we're designed to live in relationship with God and with other people. And when things of this world, that is the possessions that they particularly love and crave, that person then lives in relationship instead of God, those things become God. And that's what their problem is. That they're, they're too much attached to those items of, of, well, I don't know what it is. I call it junk, I guess. But a lot of it is, I think, items that are worthwhile that can be given away or given to somebody else. But many of those who are featured on this program Chose, have chosen to treasure in their hearts and to find their security in the piles of stuff and in the clutter of the rooms of their homes instead of God and instead of the network of people that God has called them to live in relationship with and to enjoy. All of us passionately love something or someone. We can't help it. All of us do. I find it interesting if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, that when the Apostle Paul described the latter days, he describes the characteristics of people and how they live their lives and the indications of how their lives begin to go off the tracks, as it were, when they've ignored God and they don't, they don't want to follow Christ. He talks about people and some of the characteristics. Notice that he mentions that many of those people in the last days, he said, which is actually the days we're living in right now, they've been in the last days since Paul wrote those words until now. Did you know that? We've been living in the last days, folks. That the last days, there will be people who are lovers of themselves, he says. There will also be people who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What a characteristic of our age. Do you see that when you look around you? Do you see that in your own heart? The tug it is toward being devoted to pleasure and created things that bring us pleasure rather than delighting and enjoying God and loving Him? All of us, clearly, as we look at this text and realize it's not an optional matter, it, it seems to me as we look at it, we must realize that we have failed. All of us have failed miserably to live out this reality. we failed to love God comprehensively and wholeheartedly. All of us have broken the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments, the four that deal with our relationship to God. All of us have failed to joyfully treasure God and give Him the, the reverence and respect and love that He is certainly worthy of. 
And none of us can honestly say that we've lived up to this standard. All of us are in need. As you look at this text, and as Jesus spells out the answer to the great commandment, the fact is, as we look at that commandment and deal with it square on, all of us, it reveals the fact that what? Our hearts are inclined to loving something else or someone else more than we love God. Most of the time, it's we love ourselves. We look out for ourselves and are committed to ourselves more than anything else. And Jesus, in this text, I believe, is showing us that all of us are in need of somebody. We need somebody to rescue us. We need a new heart. We need some help. Jesus perfectly loved His Father, and He perfectly loved the Holy Spirit, and He is the hope of every hopeless sinner who has broken this command. It's not optional. It's required. Now that leads us to our third point. Loving God is not possible. Or you could even say it's not easy. Or it's not something we're going to be able to do on our own. If you know anything about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, we know that love is the fruit of the Spirit of God. And none of us are going to be able to love God supremely or comprehensively as the text requires unless... God changes the dispositions in our hearts and gives us new hearts and new affections. This is the promise of the gospel. In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, John chapter 3, we're told that we must be born again. The Holy Spirit is able to transform our sin-seeking hearts, our self-focused hearts, and the Holy Spirit is able to change our stony, self-focused hearts that is so bent on loving ourselves And He is able to make that heart into a soft heart of flesh that has a love for Christ and a love for God that is inexplainable otherwise. All of us by nature are haters of God. You say, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that I hate God? I've always hated God? Well, that's the two categories you read in the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, if you want to make your way back there real quickly. Exodus 20, we read there, verse 6, five and six, you shall not worship idols. He's continuing with that other command. You have no other gods before me. Then you'll make not to make idols. Verse three, you shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations to those who what? Who hate me. That's one category of people in our world. Those who hate God. Now continue on. Verse six, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who what? Who love me and keep my commandments. That's the two categories in which everybody falls. And so when we think about loving God is not possible, we admit that we need help. And notice one of the great things about the gospel is it is by his amazing grace that God grants to us the gift of regeneration. He does a work in us that we can't do ourselves. It is a work that's done by the Holy Spirit in which our hearts begin to change. And, and after, uh, God brings about in us a, a desire to delight now in loving God. And we begin to sort of hate the things that earlier we used to love according to romans chapter 5 we read that god's love has been poured out in a believer's heart through the holy spirit who is given to every believer 
It is the Holy Spirit and the love of God that's been poured out in our hearts. That is the, the, re, the reality that anybody, the only hope that anybody can ever begin to move in the direction of loving God as spelled out in this text. And that, my friend, is available to anybody here today. God, by His grace, has worked in the hearts of so many of us who never thought that day would ever come, who never saw it as being an, an issue that we were rarely concerned about. We didn't really care about it. But God, by His Spirit, convicted us of our sin, made us aware of our need for a Savior. And by His grace, He drew us into Himself, gave us a new heart. And next thing you know, we love our loving God. We love God. The Apostle John alludes to this same truth in 1 John chapter 4. He says, love is from God, and everyone who loves is what? Born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. So it's loving God is not possible on our own, but my friend, look at this. Loving God is not superficial. Point number four. Not superficial. You say, what are you talking about? Superficial. Well, remember who, to whom Jesus was speaking. He's speaking to legalists, people who like to keep rules, like the Pharisees. And boy, they excelled in that area. They were great at keeping rules. All sorts of outward religious rituals, all sorts of pious deeds. Man, they could check off the list. Uh-huh, did that. Uh-huh, did that. They were doing it. They were very good at it. The problem was that they did all those things out of a heart that was motivated out of love for self. You say, how do you know that? Well, you read the stories about Pharisees, and Jesus says time and time again, they love to hear people praising them. They love to be seen by other people. It was all about them. And they loved to have people admire them. They weren't doing these things out of a love for God. I like to compare them, people who are legalists, who are trying to do all these things, impress these people. I compare them to the older brother in Luke 15. Remember there's two brothers in the parable of what was often called the prodigal son. It's really the parable of two brothers because it's very significant about this older brother. It's It's taught to a bunch of Pharisees who had a hard time getting excited over people repenting and finding forgiveness and receiving grace. And so they are the ones who keep all the rules. And here in this parable of the Good Samaritan, The older son, who has been staying at home while his younger brother took off and took all of the uh, the the, uh, uh, took the uh, estate that he was demanded, even though his father wasn't dead, he just offended his father and lived in a crazy lifestyle, wasted it all. He comes back home, and here's the older brother finds very little joy and refuses to celebrate when his sinner, sinful brother repents. And God extends to him grace. He has no joy in his heart at all. He's actually annoyed by it all. You see, legalists respond to this kind of situation in these words. And this is what he said. For many years, says the legalist, I have been serving you. Talking to his father. I've been serving you. I've been doing this and doing that and doing this and doing that. For I have never neglected a command of yours. Never? What's that indicate? It indicates an elevated view of self. They're totally oblivious of how they've offended God. They think they've done so well because they're comparing themselves to other people, not to God. 
and not to God's standards. And yet, he says, I'm complaining. He says, you've never given me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. And when this son of yours, doesn't he say his brother, when this son of yours who has devoured your wealth in harlots with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, listen to this, in the parable of the prodigal son, father says, my child, you have always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. He had no connection, no desire, no love for the Father at all. He was just working so that he could get everything he thought he could get coming to him from the Father when he died. He didn't care about the Father. It's sad but true that many people do many things for God, supposedly, trying to earn their way, trying to meet the expectations of other people, but in their hearts deep down, there really is no love for God. They have no love for God. It becomes menial, difficult, hard work. Jesus makes it clear that one of the fundamental principles of biblical revelation is that our devotion to God is not to be half-hearted attempts to appear better than we are, but we're to love God in a comprehensive way with every part of our being. And I don't want to take a lot of time to, to segment us up into heart and soul and mind and even our strength. I know you could do that. People have done it. I think what he's saying is with the totality of who you are as a person, you're to love God in a wholehearted way, not to love God in a half-hearted way. But notice the emphasis in the text. Three times you read the word all, all, all. He's emphatically emphasizing that what? That we're to love God with every part of our being and how we think and conceive of God in our emotional reactions toward God and in the core of our being, in our thoughts, our actions, and our will. Tom Askell said this, Every capacity and faculty of our being should express the fullness of our affection for God, that God is our supreme treasure. Well, here these devotion of these Pharisees toward God was what? Well, at best, it was divided. They were doing some things, yeah, it looked like they were doing it for God, but the real reality was they were doing it for their own advancement, for their own respect of other people. They were committed to striving for their own kingdom, if you were, for the praise of people. The idols of their hearts were what? Respect, power, pride, greed. And God is not calling us to live for Him in a half-hearted way with mixed motives, where we're actually devoted to the idols of our hearts. That's not what God's calling us to do. That's where many of us, unfortunately, struggle. And I'll admit that. We all struggle with that. But that's not what he's calling for in this text. Heart idols will tend to lose their grips in our hearts when we are supremely satisfied in God. And when our hearts are overflowing with love for God, those idols become less of an impact and have less hold upon us the more we find ourselves delighting in God. Now that leads me to another principle. I can't dwell on these too long, but I want to keep going here. Point number five is loving God is not theoretical. And what I'm trying to say here is I want to emphasize that when we talk about loving God, it seems so generalized and so lofty of a thought. Well, let's put some concrete specificity to it 
and let's bring it down to where we live and talk about if we have a love for God and we're loving God, then what's it going to look like? How will we love God is, I guess, a good question here. We're going to look at point number five. And that is wholehearted love for God always produces outward fruit. You can see it in how you live. And love for God expresses itself as we see it time and time again in Scripture. It expresses itself in obedience to God's revealed will. Moses made a big point of this. I don't have time to fully expand on all these, but I'm going to give you a couple of examples of this. Going back to Moses' writing, he emphasized the practical implications of loving God was what? That we would obey God and obey His commands. So look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 20. Deuteronomy 30, 20 says, Love the Lord your God by obeying His voice and by holding fast to Him. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 22. If you carefully observe all these commands I'm giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all of His ways and to hold fast to Him. All those things are linked together. Loving God, holding fast to Him, and walking in His ways. So it's no question that 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 ties in the same theme. Love for God always operates in the in the plane of everyday life as we live and follow out his will, he says, for verse John 5, 3, this is the love of God. This is the love that's manifested from God in us, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments, watch this now, his commandments, 1 John 5, 3, are not burdensome. You say, oh, come on. Do you know how hard it is to keep God's commands. Do you know how hard it is to follow the Scripture? Do you know how hard it is to put this stuff into practice? Come on, it's overwhelming. Watch it now. What he's saying in this text is, those who love God and who delight in God find themselves joyfully surrendering to God's ways and find themselves saying, you know, following you, Lord, it's not burdensome for me. I'm enjoying the fact that because you love me and call me to love you, I love you and I'm going to show you my love as I follow your ways because your ways are good for me. Your ways are wise. Your ways are the paths of life. And so those who learn to submit and trust him and walk in gratitude, 1 John 2 verse 5 says, whoever keeps God's word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Unwholehearted love produces the fruit that's pretty evident after a while that we really are loving God. You say, what was that fruit going to look like? More specifics? Here's some other examples. If we love God wholeheartedly, we're going to learn to hate what God hates. Psalm 97, verse 10. Hate evil, you who love the Lord. And then you also know from 1 John 5, 1. That if we love God, it's going to prompt us to love the people that God loves. Whoever loves the Father, 1 John 5, 1, loves the child born of Him. And even our memory verse, 1 John 5, verse, verse, sorry, 1 John 2, verse 15 through 17, talks about what? If we love God, then we're going to reject the values of the world system. We're not going to buy all that. So there are some practical things we see. And so the question would, again, be helpful for us to contemplate and consider further is, how would you gauge your love for God 
based on, is it evident that you are delighting in walking His ways? Or do you find that following Christ and following what the Scripture teaches is burdensome? It's something that you resent. Something that you really are struggling with. Then you have to ask yourself, is your heart in a way and put your relating to God out of a love for Him? Or are you like a Pharisee who says, I don't like keeping the rules. I really don't like you either, God. I'm just doing it because I don't want to lose, lose face. It really is a very revealing issue of our hearts. Are there indications in your life that their obedience is maybe half-hearted? That you do enough to feel like, well, I don't want to have people look at me and, and see me as, as a person who's full of compromise. So you do enough to sort of settle in and you get by and you keep up your quote-unquote good reputation. But really, are you, is your heart fully and wholeheartedly committed to Christ and to God loving Him? Or would you say that your obedience to God is something that you're pursuing with wholehearted devotion and diligence? You say, you know, I've tried that or I've got the point where I used to be in my life, but, you know, I find it's very, I'm not there right now. My heart has become hardened. My heart has become cold. My heart has become indifferent. And I find myself, my love for Christ has really dwindled, dwindled over time. My friend, look at point number six, and please stay with me. This is the most important part of this message. I guess I shouldn't say it that way, but don't don't miss me here. Follow me closely. Loving God is not to be drudgery. Drudgery. Wholehearted love for God that produces obedience is to spring from a heart that has proper motives. Some people strive to obey God primarily to earn His blessing. And they're working hard and they're doing what they think they're supposed to be doing and they're looking for God to give them the payback. Other people are serving God and trying to follow His ways and saying, okay, Lord, I'll I'll love you this way. But they're doing it out of fear because they're afraid they're going to be punished if they don't. What's the motive for wholehearted devotion? Well, an undivided heart full of love for God is the proper acceptable motive for obedience. And our response of obedience is not to be rendered to God so that we might become worthy of His love. Notice verse 19 of 1 John 4. We read it earlier. Many of us have memorized it. We love Him because He first loved us. Wow, that makes all the difference, my friend. It's not the other way around. I have to love Him first before He'll love me. No, no. If that's the way you're relating to God, no wonder you're finding it to be drudgery. Look at what the text says here. We love God because He first loved us. So, the best way to grow in our love for God is to reflect upon, is to ponder, is to contemplate, is to celebrate God's love for us. And to demonstrate the fact is to think about God's love for us that was demonstrated so clearly and so poignantly and powerfully in Christ who gave himself for us, what? While we were sinners, running in the other direction, holding our fist up at God saying, leave me alone, I'll run my life. Here is Christ dying for us, showing us the love of God for people who are unlovable. The best way to stoke the fire of a love for God that would fuel the flames of obedience is to what? Preach the gospel to yourself every day. 
If you embrace and, and enjoy and find excitement in the Gospel, my friend, it will energize you in your love for God and it will spill right over automatically into wanting to do what God has taught us to do in His Word. Real quickly, look at your notes, if you will. And I've given you a quote there from chapter 7 of Jerry Bridges' book, which I would commend to you, called The Discipline of Grace. Jerry Bridges' book, chapter 7. And I want you to look at his insights, which, I, again, I'm indebted to him and some of his comments here. Very helpful. Stay with me. Read there at the bottom of the, of the notes. The extent to which we realize and acknowledge our own sinfulness and the extent to which we realize the total forgiveness and cleansing from those sins. Oh, the glory of that thought. The total forgiveness and cleansing from those sins will determine the measure of our love to God. So if we want to grow in our love for God, we must what? Try a little harder? Get on His good side? No. We must keep coming back to the cross and the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, my friend. That's the pump that will get the love of God going in our hearts is to respond to His love, is to be amazed at His love, is to be blown away by His love. Real quickly, another illustration of this principle, I believe, is Luke chapter 7. I urge you to meditate upon that this week. Luke 7, you've got a situation where Jesus is invited to a home of what? A Pharisee, a rule keeper. A person separated from anybody that has any kind of quote-unquote sin problems. This guy's got it all together. So he's in the home. He's reclining like they did in the first century. His elbow is here. He's eating. And his feet are out this way. And a woman comes into a, which was a proper, proper thing. People would come in oftentimes to just watch this little fancy gathering and this huge meal. And she comes in and she begins crying. She's weeping. Tears of joy. She takes her hair and lets it down, which is a, crazy thing to do you would never do that in public she doesn't care she's wiping jesus's feet with her tears and she takes the most valuable possession she has an alabaster of perfume she breaks it open pours it on his feet everything is filled with that scent and 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 they're looking at her like you idiot lady what are you doing and then they start telling jesus what are you doing letting this woman do this to you the woman didn't care what other people thought of her and she didn't care how much value she had just lost in the most prized possession that she had. She didn't care about those things. She poured it on Jesus' feet. Her response to Jesus was a love that was heartfelt with overwhelming gratitude. Overwhelming gratitude that Jesus would extend grace and forgiveness and love to her in her unworthiness because of all of her past and the known sin in her life. And Jesus, at that moment, my friend, is her greatest treasure. And so she's what? She is loving deeply out of a profound sense of the depth to which he's been forgiven. And Jesus points that out in Luke 7. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. There's the key, my friend. The more you understand the grace of Jesus Christ and being forgiven, the more you're going to love. It just happens. But notice what he says about rule keepers and, and people who are legalists. He who is forgiven little, that is, you don't see any need to be forgiven because you're doing all the rules as best you can, comparing yourself to other people, they love very little. 
This woman's act of sacrifice, sacrificial devotion was the overflow of a wholehearted love for Christ. It was motivated, motivated out of a profound sense of pre- appreciation for God's mercy and grace shown to her in Jesus Christ. I want to leave you one final thought here. John Owen, at the bottom of your notes, again from the Jerry Bridges chapter. Listen to this quote. The greatest sorrow, the greatest sorrow and the greatest burden you can lay upon the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. My friend, do you not have much love for God? Is it because you don't believe Him? Because you don't really know Him? Because you have your own mind made up of what you think God's like? The more you know and the more accurate and the more depth and breadth of your understanding of God, I'll guarantee you, if the Spirit of God is working in your heart, you will see that that will draw from us an even greater capacity for the love you'll have toward God. Because why? Because His undivided, wholehearted love He's shown to you will evoke from you by the Spirit's work an an undivided, wholehearted love response in return. May it be true. May it be true. Let's pray. Oh, gracious and loving Father, how I thank You that, Lord, Your grace has been shown to unworthy sinners, that Your love has been placed upon us and demonstrated to us through Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us as a satisfying sacrifice for sinners like us. Oh Lord, I pray that You would open the eyes of our hearts to see and to comprehend the unfathomable riches and glories of Your love for us in Christ. Oh, the depths and the breadth and the width and the height of the love of Christ for us. Lord, I pray that You would help someone who's here today who has been serving You and it's become drudgery to do the things that Scripture tells them to do. And their hearts have become cold and indifferent. Oh, Father, I pray, would You by Your Spirit soften their hardened heart Help them see, Lord. Help them to see the great expansiveness of Your love for them. That they would understand that You have loved them first. Rather than trying to think that they must love You first before You'll love them. Lord, I pray that You would help every one of us to embrace the Gospel. To cherish the Gospel. To preach the Gospel to ourselves again and again to marvel at the Gospel, Lord, and that through these kinds of exercises, Lord, that we might once again have hearts that are drawn toward You in undivided devotion, hearts that are wholeheartedly, comprehensively loving You. Lord, help us to fulfill the purpose for which we've been made, is to live in relationship with You through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray if there's someone here today who came into service saying, well, I thought that I was a Christian, but they realized... They're not really a Christian. They had no love for you. They've just been putting on a front or keeping rules or trying to impress other people. Lord, I pray that even today they might feel the love of God drawing them to want to come to Christ, to cry out to Christ, Lord Jesus, save me. 
Rescue me from my love of self that I might become a lover of you, God. Do your mighty work, I pray, O Lord. And may you fill us with a fresh sense of your love for us this week. And may we live out of the flow of that wellspring of your love in lives that are honoring to you and pleasing to you as we seek to do your commandments, Lord. May they not be burdensome to us, but a delight, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.